Hello, and welcome to the latest employment law podcast from Stevens Harwood's employment team. You can subscribe to the whole series on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud, or by visiting our website at www.shlegal.com. My name is Parvis Garney, and I'm an employment partner in the Stevens Harwood Employment Group. Now, with me today, I've got Michelle Aubertin, who is an associate in our team. Now, in this December's and final podcast of the year, uh, it seems appropriate that we take a look back at 2018 uh, and do a review and also uh, have a look ahead of what is to come in 2019. We're going to look at some of the key employment cases this year. Uh, We've picked around five in total and developments uh, this year as well with a focus on the crucial takeaway points uh, for employers. So let's run through the standout cases of the year. Michelle, what have you picked as the first one? So I'll start with the recent case of Timis and Another and Osipov in the Court of Appeal. I think this is one of the most important cases of this year and potentially a game-changer for whistleblowing claims. In this case, an employee brought a claim for whistleblowing detriment and automatically unfair dismissal. So the case turned on the meaning of Section 47B2 of the Employment Rights Act 1996, which excludes detriment claims where the detriment in question amounts to dismissal. The Court of Appeal confirmed that Section 47b2 only excludes claims against the employer in respect of its own act of dismissal because such claims are covered by the automatic unfair dismissal provisions in the Act. However, the Court ruled that individual co-workers can be jointly and severally liable with the employer for the losses of an employee who is dismissed for whistleblowing. So, what does this mean? Well, as a result of this ruling, employees can bring a detriment claim against co-employees, even when the detriment is the dismissal. This was vital in this case because the employer had become insolvent, so the only recourse the employee had was to bring a claim against those who had dismissed him. Luckily, they had the benefit of director's insurance. Usually the employer will be the prime target of any claim for whistleblower detriment, as it will generally have the deeper pockets. However, as in this case, where the employing company is insolvent, or in the case of new or small companies with limited capital, individual co-workers may be called to account financially for their actions. We expect more employees to bring whistleblowing dismissal detriment claims going forward, so this case highlights the importance of directors and officers' liability insurance, and most directors will require such cover as a term of their appointment. We can also see employees bringing whistleblowing detriment claims against co-workers for losses arising from the dismissals as a tactic to extract larger settlements. One other point to flag is that employees who carry out whistleblowing investigations or make the decision to dismiss may also end up asking for an indemnity from their employer to guard against personal liability should the whistleblower bring a claim against them. Thanks, Michelle. Let's move on to the next case, uh, and I'm going to look at the Supreme Court case of Newcastle-upon-Tyne Hospitals, NHS Foundation Trust, and Haywood. Uh, You'll remember we covered this uh, many months ago, earlier in the year, when this came out. So just a quick recap about what this was about. Now, this case was interesting because... The court held that if an employer intends to notify the employee of termination of the employment in writing, and in the absence of an express contractual term specifying when a notice of termination is effective, the notice starts to run when the letter comes to the attention of the employee, so not when the notice is sent. So the employee must have actually either read the letter or have had a reasonable opportunity of doing so. When notice took place was important in this case because it would determine whether or not Mrs. Haywood's employment terminated before her 50th birthday. If it did not, she was entitled to a significantly higher pension. The key takeaway point here is that employers should review their employment contracts to ensure that they include provisions setting out when notice is deemed to be received and take effect. It's vital that detailed and considered notice provisions are drafted into contracts in order to be certain as to when notice starts to run. 
Thanks, Parvis. The third case is Serious Fraud Office, or the SFO, and Eurasian Natural Resources Corporation Limited, a landmark decision for legal professional privilege. The case is particularly significant for any company tasked with undertaking an internal investigation in response to a whistleblower or any other allegation of wrongdoing. The Court of Appeal overturned the previous High Court ruling that in-house advice prepared prior to court proceedings was not protected by privilege. This caused lawyers across the country to breathe a sigh of relief as the original position was restored. The case is seen by many to be a boost to the principle of lawyer-employer confidentiality. In terms of practical steps going forward, the key points to bear in mind for employers are number 1. While simply labelling an email legally privileged and confidential won't ensure that a document is privileged, employers should get into the habit of doing so to help show which documents are thought to be privileged. And number two, employers should also make clear whether in-house lawyers are conducting investigations or producing their opinions in their role as lawyers or in an internal investigatory role. Privilege is often lost where in-house lawyers take on a management role. Thanks, Michelle. The fourth case on our list is the case of Rock Advertising and MWB Business Exchange Centres Limited, which was a Supreme Court decision handed down in May 2018. Now, the Supreme Court held that a no oral modification or a NOM clause is legally effective, overturning the previous Court of Appeal ruling, which caused some concern, that a NOM clause did not prevent a valid variation by oral agreement. The ruling is generally good news as oral variations to a contract can often be unclear, being unrecorded, which can increase the risk of parties not knowing exactly what the variation was intended to be. So if employees do not currently have a no oral modification clause in their employment contracts, we suggest updating your contracts to include one. Another area is vicarious liability, which has been a hot topic in the courts in 2018. The big case of this year in this area, and the fifth case on our list, was the Court of Appeal decision in uh, Morrison Supermarkets versus various claimants. In this case, a disgruntled employee deliberately disclosed a large amount of his co-workers' personal data on the internet. As a result, over 5,000 Morrison's employees brought a claim against the supermarket. As there was sufficient link between the employee's role and the wrongful conduct, the court found that Morrison's were vicariously liable for the actions of this employee, even though it had not instructed the employee to do this, of course, and nor was it aware of the employee's intentions to do so. Morrison's were found to have breached several data protection principles and did not have appropriate technical and organisational measures to protect against unauthorised or unlawful processing of personal data. Now, it's quite a harsh decision, and one can have a lot of sympathy with Morrison's on this, given they hadn't really done anything wrong. The Court of Appeal indicated that the solution is to insure against this type of data breach, so prudent employers should seek appropriate insurance to cover themselves in case of a similar eventuality. Now, this sort of insurance is probably going to come at a high premium, we suspect, and therefore many small employers may not be able to purchase it or will just be simply unaffordable. Nevertheless, employers should ensure they have robust systems and controls to protect against the misuse of employees' personal data. Now, we, on this particular case, we understand that Morrisons are planning to go to the Supreme Court, so certainly it's one to watch next year. While this case may be a blow to employers, just on an ancillary point, I think the judgment highlights the need for organisations to embrace the culture of taking data protection responsibility seriously, especially after the introduction of GDPR. Now, employers will likely already have undertaken a full review of their policies, data systems and employment contracts and so on, but it's worth reminding that compliance with GDPR is an ongoing obligation and can keep this under review. 
On the topic of vicarious liability, just one other quick case to mention, uh, which touches on this whole area, was another Court of Appeal decision, and this was the case of Bellman and Northampton Recruitment Limited. Uh, This was an interesting case because it concerned Mr Bellman, who punched a colleague twice at a bar following the company at a Christmas party, which was outside of the office. It was found that there was sufficient connection between his job as a managing director and his drunken assault to render the company vicariously liable for his actions. So again, just another stark reminder that employers are likely to be on the hook in terms of liability for the actions of wayward employees at events which take place out of office hours and off-premises, of course, there's a link to their role. Whilst these cases depend heavily on the facts, I think the direction of travel and vicarious liability is, is clear. There's increasingly a much lower threshold than previously thought for the employer to be on the hook for acts committed by its staff outside of work. So another topic which has featured heavily in the news this year is the gig economy after a number of high-profile decisions. So the gig economy is a term often used to describe a labour market characterised by short-term contracts and freelance work as opposed to permanent jobs and mostly associated with the tech sector and companies that operate platforms. It's estimated that 5 million people are employed in this flexible capacity. The recent high-profile cases of Uber, Pimlico Plumbers and City Sprint this year highlighted the tribunal's readiness to find that those engaged on flexible, relatively autonomous contracts were workers, as opposed to self-employed persons. The cases this year don't tell us anything particularly new, but the direction of travel is very clear. The battleground is most often self-employed versus worker status, and the courts are increasingly willing to find that individuals are in reality workers as opposed to self-employed contractors. Now, one of the key issues that can determine this is the use of substitutes to provide services. So if a substitute worker can be used without restrictions, there will be a better chance that the person will be classed as a self-employed contractor. I suspect the gig economy will continue to attract headlines in 2019, and the government has just announced it plans to roll out new legislation to improve protection for agency workers, zero-hour workers and others with atypical working arrangements. The proposals are quite modest, but nevertheless, this is an area to watch in 2019. Thanks, Michelle. Moving on to other employment law developments this year, we had the introduction of post-employment notice pay, or PEMP, as it's commonly referred to. This development has meant that it no longer matters whether an employee has a payment in lieu of notice uh, or pylon clause in their employment contract, um, and as to whether or not this will be taxed. So this change was brought about really to simplify the taxation of termination payments, but instead practitioners are finding that in fact imposes a rather complex administrative burden on employers. PEMP is calculated using a formula based on basic pay, the number of days in post-employment notice period, the number of days in the pay period and the contractual pylon. Employees should now be incorporating their PEMP figure and how it has been calculated into all settlement agreements, including a clause confirming that the employee agrees with the figure and how it has been calculated. In another area, I think it would be remiss not to mention the Me Too movement, which has been absolutely huge. And the increase in sexual harassment claims against uh, employers is on the rise. And this has made headline news many times during the course of this year. We've seen an increase in the number of these cases and employers in all sectors, I think, have been impacted. We also expect to see more interest in these cases by regulators, particularly, for example, in the financial services sector, where a letter from the FCA in September confirmed that it views sexual harassment as a misconduct issue and potentially going to fitness and propriety. We expect other regulators to follow suit, so employers in regulated sectors should expect their investigations to be monitored. The Women in Equalities Committee also released a report on sexual harassment in the workplace in July this year, and the committee said that 
Whilst there is a widespread knowledge amongst women about workplace sexual harassment, there is a lack of awareness at the most senior levels of employers about the extent of sexual harassment in their organisations. The committee put forward several recommendations, which included, number one, a mandatory duty on employers to protect employees from sexual harassment in the workplace. Number two, a duty for public sector employers to conduct risk assessments for sexual harassment and then mitigate risks. Number three, reintroducing employer liability for third-party harassment. Number four, extending sexual harassment protection to interns and volunteers. Number five, extending the time limit for bringing a claim to six months. Six, enabling tribunals to award punitive damages. And number seven, it recommended limiting the use of confidentiality clauses in settlement agreements to government-approved standard clauses. So we're waiting to see uh, what comes out of this uh, in terms of the government's review in this area and what changes they look to make, if any at all. So, But I think this is certainly an area uh, and one to watch in 2019. So looking forward to 2019, there are several developments on the horizon. Firstly, the government announced that it would be extending the rules that it introduced in the public sector on off-payroll working to the private sector in April 2020. The government has said that with effect from April 2020, medium and large companies in the private sector that contract with personal service companies for the provision of worker services will have to account for tax and national insurance through PAYE in the same way as the public sector has been required to do since April 2017. This has the potential to be huge and employers should start planning for this in 2019. Secondly, on the 9th of December 2019, the Senior Managers and Certification Regime will be extended to all firms regulated or authorised under the Financial Services and Markets Act 2000. This essentially replaces the approved persons regime and regulated firms should prepare for the implementation of this new regime. And a few cases to look out for. Firstly, Tillman and Egon Zedner Limited is due to be heard at the Supreme Court in January 2019. In this case, the Court of Appeal set aside an injunction upholding a six-month non-compete restrictive covenant. The Court said that the non-compete clause was an unenforceable restraint of trade and could not be severed from the other governments. This case is important because it gives further guidance on the blue pencil test, which says that an unenforceable provision must be capable of being removed without the necessity of adding to or modifying the wording of what remains. Now, the next case is Royal Mail Group Limited and Duty, and this is a case that employers who are facing whistleblowing cases should look out for. In this case, the court had to decide if the employee had been automatically unfairly dismissed by a manager who was not aware of protected disclosures the employee had made to a different manager. The Supreme Court hearing date is yet to be fixed. And finally, judgment for Asda Stores Limited and Brearley and others, an equal pay case, is due to be handed down in 2019 after being heard in October this year. This is one of the largest equal pay claims brought in the private sector. In this case, the Employment Appeal Tribunal said that a predominantly female group of supermarket retail employees can compare themselves with a mainly male group of distribution depot employees for the purposes of an equal pay claim of work of equal value. The sums in issue in these proceedings could exceed £100 so as to brought the appeal in October. The decision will affect all of the large supermarket chains and have potential ramifications across many other sectors. Thanks, Michelle. Finally, just a few other changes to come in next year. Well, we've got the company's miscellaneous reporting regulations uh, 2018, which come into force on 1 January 2019. And this includes a requirement that UK listed companies with more than 250 employees report on stakeholder and employee engagement and publish and justify the pay difference, which is known as the pay ratio, between their chief executive and their average UK worker. The requirements apply to the financial year of the companies beginning on or after 1st of January 2019, with companies starting to report their pay ratios in 2020. 
We also have a, a consultation that the government has started on ethnic pay gap reporting, which is, of course follows the introduction of gender pay gap reporting last year. In this consultation, the government are looking for asking for views on what ethnicity pay information should be reported in order to drive change without causing undue burdens on business. The consultation closes in the middle of Jan in 2019. And finally, of course, how could we go through the entire podcast without mentioning the B word, which, of course, yes, we mean Brexit. We are due to be leaving the EU on the 29th of March 2019, and we're still no further forward on a deal. It remains to be seen whether we get an extension to Article 50, or indeed we do leave um, if there is a second referendum with a remain result, or alternatively we crash out altogether. Uh, times are, of course, are very uncertain, and the outcome on Brexit will have huge implications for employment law and employers. So that's the end of our roundup of the key employment law developments for 2018 and a look at what is to come uh, in 2019. Thank you, Michelle, for joining me in this podcast. Thanks to all of you for listening. Just a reminder that you can listen again to our podcast and subscribe to the entire series on iTunes, Stitcher and SoundCloud or by visiting the Stevenson Harwood uh, website. Wish you all a happy holiday season, a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year.